I'm reaching you via Warsaw from Oxford. Apologies for any difficulties we caused. It went dark here while I was um, trying to connect. Brexit has destroyed all sensible links. Hello, Slavic Connection listeners. I'm Colin. And I am Sergio Glujart. Here for our conversation with Norman Davies. Norman Davies is a preeminent scholar of Polish studies and English, and he's also currently active with the St. Anthony's College Oxford Noble Foundation to create a program on modern Poland at Oxford University. Uh, Sergio, how was our conversation with him today? It was fantastic, Colin. I mean, it first of all, it's such a privilege to have such a luminary historian. He had a lot of uh, very insightful things to say about what's going on right now between Ukraine, Poland, and Russia, and so on. Putin is behaving as though the Ukrainians had invaded Russia. He can't imagine that, you know, what he's doing is is aggression against somebody else. It's just not in the narrative. Yeah, word of the day was context, and we got a lot of it. I'm sure you'll enjoy the lesson. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Okay, well... Fire away, fire away. Professor Davies, it's an honor to have you on the podcast. You've been at the front of English language Polish studies for for decades. We kind of just wanted to ask the changes that you've seen. Well, that, that's an hour's lecture, I think. In fact, I did give a, an hour's lecture on that topic with the Kostiuszko Foundation a few months ago. I think the state of Polish studies improved slowly over a period, but I feel that the subject has declined, possibly because the universities have become commercial businesses. My last lecture in London University, which was in 1996, was interrupted by an administrator who came to count the number of students sitting on the benches, which had never happened in 30 years before that. And her comment was, you don't have as many students as the professor of Russian. So I said something like, well, Russia is about 30 times bigger than Poland. But I'm very worried, not to say distressed, about the state of Polish studies which uh, are not as dynamic as they were in my day. I think they've gone backwards. My, my, my own chair in London, for example, was abolished after I retired and hasn't been replaced. And there's been a general trend away from, if you like, national studies. It's not just Polish. No, even powerful things like German studies have been affected. Professors have to dream up. Uh, new courses, which they call transnational. Of course, the material is exactly the same and the people talking about it are exactly the same. But it's very difficult to persuade a university or a faculty to take on a, a course in, in anything connected with Poland. So I'd be curious why specifically you think that might be, because I mean, just from a sort of instinctive reaction, I imagine Poland, I imagine it having a more or less central position in European geopolitics today, especially in terms of the European Union and being, you know, sort of the one of the borderlands of the European Union and so on. So I'd be curious to hear more about why you think this is happening, given all of this. The, the basic thing is that the academic community of professors, teachers, students, administrators doesn't exist. 
what you have is a quite a, a large number of scattered people who you know work in departments of sociology or politics or history or something and they specialize they often do their research in polish things but they have to uh, teach whatever it is you know um, the third reich or the holocaust or the things which have established themselves as uh, as commercial subjects and it's very difficult to break in i have actually created a foundation which is having difficulties taking off um, to to address this subject but one of the problems is that people in poland don't understand what the what the problem is poland having been you know impoverished in the soviet bloc assumes that people should send money to to help poland not that poles should send money to to help you know rich british or american universities uh, there's another element in that poles were brought up to think that in order to study poland you have to know the polish language this is a fatal mistake in my, in my estimation polish is not an easy language there are a lot of materials you can start learning in english for introductory courses you know the undergraduate student level and spending 3 or 4 years trying to learn polish before you get your teeth into something is it is very destructive you have to be a you know very skilled linguist to make progress and it's not necessary what is required i think is the basic idea that is that every faculty in the humanities in british american australian universities whatever english language teaching should uh, have a polish element not a whole chair not a whole not a whole department but a, a polish element in what they do so that if whatever if you're having a lecture on the renaissance somebody should tell the students there's a rather interesting renaissance in poland which nobody's ever heard of except you and me nearly all the teaching on the second world war is about the great powers including the holocaust the holocaust is taught taught without anybody telling the students that about the context it's all it's as though the holocaust took place on a a planet you know called the third reich where uh, jews were being killed by by nazis and and their collaborators and so sort of nothing else was going on the experiences of the poles uh, and of other peoples like the ukrainians the ukrainians suffer in exactly the same way Now, you know very few british or american historians understand that there were more ukrainian killed in the second world war than jews uh, they never heard of it they all say well 27 million russians and then you have to say well actually they weren't russians they were soviets and there were 100 nationalities in the soviet union it was the ukrainians and the belarusians and the baltics who were on the front line not the russians and they'll say oh well what about the siege of leningrad and he says yes a million people were killed in leningrad 10 million ukrainians were killed in ukraine why don't you talk about them they've never heard of it anyhow next question i 
I was just thinking about, you know, Poland is present and people don't think about it, right? I mean, in the United States, when we talk about the Second World War, we say that it started September 1st, 1939, because we're using the date Poland was invaded, even though the United States doesn't join the war for two years. But we yeah. don't talk about it that way. It's just the day the war yeah. started. It's it decenters Poland and even using their own invasion. Well, the, the Americans talk like the Russians do until, except the Russians don't tell you they were involved from almost the beginning. Stalin joined Hitler in the attack on Poland in, in September 39. But what can you do? The thing about it is Poland is very central to all of that. It's not a peripheral subject. Ukraine is very much in the headlines at present, and I've, I've been trying to write various things for the press. But nine out of ten commentators don't know the first thing about the history of Ukraine. They're absolutely astonished when you tell them that the whole of Ukraine was in the Kingdom of Poland for longer than it was in, in Russia. That's something that I, I'd like to touch on if we can. I know you've uh, done some work on this in the past and have spoken about this in the past. Well, yeah, it's not work. It's just an ob obvious, right. blindingly obvious fact. But, you know, why are Ukrainians different from Russians? What, what experiences have they had that are, are different from Russians? And you can have a long list of them, but many of the most important ones about language, about religion, uh, about politics and so on, are because they lived in Poland. Have you heard Ukrainian? Like every other word is Polish. It, it's sort of Russian spoken with a Polish vocabulary. But, you know, the background to Ukrainian culture, Poland is as important as, as Russia in the long view. Obviously, Russia is especially important because for the last two or three hundred years, Russia has replaced Poland as the, uh, the main ruler of, uh, of, of Ukraine. But that doesn't change the past. And anyhow, I, I, I fear that I will talk and talk unless you... Um, stop me or, or give me something else to... Oh, no desire to stop you, actually. Yeah, I, not at all. <laughs> I kind of wanted to hear more about that yeah. history. We were aware that there is this, you know, 400 years of, of rule from Krakow and uh, Warsaw, but you say that this is the experience that Ukrainians have had. Okay, what shall we say? Religion, right? The Ukrainians, long before they call themselves Ukrainians, in English... Well, in Latin, they were Ruthenians, uh, Rusinian in Polish. Long before Russia existed at all, they were Orthodox who recognized the patriarch of Constantinople, the, the Greek patriarch. When the Greek patriarch was overrun by the Turks, you know, in the fall of Constantinople, 1453, the Russians had the bright idea that they would create their own patriarch whom all the Orthodox Slavs should recognize. And the largest group of Orthodox Slavs outside Muscovy was what we now call Ukrainians. And they'd no desire to be Russian Orthodox. Most people in the West don't know the difference between Russian Orthodox and other sorts of Orthodox. So to counter this, the biggest group of Ukrainians created a new church called the Greek Catholic Church, which uh, retained the old Byzantine rite, the liturgy, in 
while recognizing the Roman Pope as patriarch. And this church was persecuted by the, the Russians every time they came into territories where these Greek Catholics lived. Those terrible, horrible killing deportations. My wife's grandfather was a Greek Catholic who fled from what is now Belarusia to Austrian Galicia because in, in the Austrian Empire, you could practice, you could be a Greek Catholic without being persecuted. So this religious experience is something which the Russians never experience themselves. Of course, Russians are never aware that they persecute anybody uh, or invade anybody. You know, Putin is behaving as though the Ukrainians had invaded Russia. He can't imagine that you know, what he's doing is, is aggression against somebody else. It's just not in the narrative. Anyhow, that, that religion is one thing. I, I talked about language. The Ukrainian language has roots in the same Proto-Slavonic that Russian has, but it's not a derivative of Russian. Russian developed later, and yet the Russians, of course, think that all Slav culture is somehow a derivative of theirs. Putin has reverted to attitudes which were prevalent under the under the Tsars, you know, before 1917, where um, there was all, only one Russian language and anything else was a dialect of Russian. The Bolsheviks, interestingly, had a, a different view. They recognized the existence of a Ukrainian language and of a hundred other languages in the, you know, the vast territory of, of the USSR. And in the 1920s, there was a, a very energetic campaign to promote the, the teaching and learning of non-Russian languages. You know, everything from Uzbek or Tajik or um, you know, Kazakh to Belarus uh, and Ukrainian and so on. But then when Stalin came along, he he decided he didn't like this sort of linguistic pluralism. And in 1938, the height of the terror, Russian was made the language of state, and all the other languages were demoted as regional languages. After that, all universities in the Soviet Union were in Russian. So you couldn't study at the university level if you didn't know Russian. Ukrainian survived, but uh, as a second best, mainly in, in rural areas. So uh, it's only when you get to 1991 that the Ukrainian Republic is formed. And of course, the Ukrainian language has been made the state language of Ukraine. But it's still a bone of contention. I don't know whether you've ever seen a video of the boxing match that took place in the Ukrainian parliament. I think in two, the, the deputies started fighting each other and quite a few uh, hefty blows were landed. But that was all over language. The latest law, which dates from 219, does put Ukrainian as the state language above all others. And I suspect that Putin feels humiliated that Russian is regarded as a, a regional language together with you know, Romanian and Moldovan and uh, Yiddish, whereas, of course, Putin thinks that you know, Russian has always got to be top dog. 
I, I mentioned the Jews. Going back to Polish times, po Polish rule, the Polish rulers introduced large numbers of Jews into Ukraine. The Jewish men were literate, and this gave them a, a very good chance to be administrators and managers, and they moved into Ukraine with Polish noblemen, landowners, the typical Ukrainian village in the whatever 17th and 18th century had a Polish landowner sitting in his castle, uh, a little Jewish town next to the castle made up of people who you know, ran the estates, and then a sea of Ukrainian peasants. That was, if you like, the stereotype. And it was very different from, from Russia. There were no Jews in Russia at all until the partitions of Poland. And then when the Russian Empire took over the eastern territories of, of the uh, Polish Commonwealth, they absorbed a large number of, of Polish Jews, many of whom were then Russified and learned Russian and became Russian Jews in the 19th century. But before that, there was no such thing as a Russian Jew. See, you've probably got Jewish friends in, in Texas. Ask, ask them where their grandmother came from. When I was teaching at Stanford, I used to do this all the time, and it was it was very entertaining. The, the Jewish kids would nearly always say, "Oh, the, uh, you know, my family came from Russia." So, and he say, "Okay, go and ask your grandmother where in Russia." And they come back next week. Oh, they came from Warsaw. <laughs> <laughs> right. Wow. Right. <laughs> So wow. That sort of thing. I remember three students in Stanford. I was doing this exercise of, you know, where did your ancestors come from? Which is a very good question for all Americans, as you probably know. It's a, it's a complicated subject. And uh, one of these kids said, oh, my grandparents or great-grandparents came from Austria. And another said, well, my ancestors came from Poland. And a third one said, well, my ancestors came from Ukraine. So I did the, the usual thing, okay, ask your grandmother where exactly they came from. And they all came from exactly the same town, namely Lviv. <laughs> yeah. And they didn't know it. You know, they didn't know it. One yeah. of the features you may have noticed in America is when immigrants arrive, they seek out relatives and people from the same areas where they came from. So a lot of the immigrants from Poland would sail on the ship together. These people from Lvov, right? Poles, Jews, Ukrainians. They would all go to the same immigration agency and travel to Hamburg or Bremen, get on the ship together. But once they were in New York, once they got off the ship in Ellis Island, the Poles would go to whatever, the Polish parish. The Ukrainians would head off to Canada to meet their relatives there. And the Jews, of course, would go to Jewish communities in, uh, in America. And very quickly, those people forget where they came from, what the context was. And that's a rich vein to, to explore. If you can get people talking about their families, it's a good way into history.
So anecdotally, I hear a lot now from friends and family, relatives in Romania, that at the beginning of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you know, the Romanians were totally ready, willing and excited to take in as many refugees as possible to support as much as possible. But now what I'm hearing is that this is sort of dying out. And now you're starting to hear rhetoric like, oh, well, why should we take in so many? What have they ever really done for us? We've never really been historical friends or anything like that. So I'd be curious to hear if you have any any opinions on how some of these neighboring countries are addressing the war, the refugee crisis, anything like that through these historical or maybe even, yeah. you know, pseudo historical frameworks. Well, I, I'm not familiar with, with with the Romanian situation, but the biggest country concerned is is Poland, which is is taken in four million refugees, and none of them are in camps. They've all been hosted by individual families, largely through an excellent work of local authorities, not the government. But now, after six months, we are, incidentally, I've not been to Poland for quite a long time because of the pandemic, but we're hearing from friends that there are stresses and strains. If you have a a family living in your spare room, or in Polish schools, all the Ukrainian kids, the refugees, have to go to school. So the average classroom in Poland has one third of the seats taken up by kids who can't speak Polish. So the school has to hire a Ukrainian teacher if they can. There are quite a lot of Ukrainian teachers, you know, among the mothers and so on. But it's the same with you know, the health service. The refugees need health care like everybody else. And after a time, the stresses and strains build up. I, I don't think it's a major problem yet, but if this were to go on for several years, things could get more tense than, than they are. What is really surprising in Poland is that the Ukrainians were seen in many parts of Poland as the historical enemy. In the early 20th century, the conflict between Poles and Ukrainians was very ancient and very bitter. Polish-Ukrainian War of 1919, for example. In the Second World War, it, it reached genocidal proportions when the one faction of the Ukrainian underground started murdering every Polish man, woman and child they could get their hands on, which has left a very bitter legacy. And suddenly, (laughs) millions of Ukrainians, usually women and children, sort of harmless women and children, are walking the streets and sort of living in everybody's houses. So there's going to be a tremendous research program needed to learn what what do they talk about? And a lot of it must have been, you know, what was your grandfather doing in 1920? The whole the whole Jewish business is very very interesting in that a lot of outsiders think that the the Jewish problem was bilateral, I Poles and Jews not getting on as well as they should do, but in fact in most places it was a triangular situation. We talked about Lvov, it was a ethnic cultural triangle of Poles, Ukrainians, and Jews all in the vicinity, all with their own interests, their own um, points of view. 
And, you know, in Warsaw, it was Poles, Russians and Jews. Warsaw was a city of the Russian Empire until 1915, not too long ago. And in Western Poland, of course, it was Poles, Germans and Jews, Poznan. And that's the way it should be studied rather than... All sides in these conflicts have uh, interests and uh, stereotypes and prejudices, and it, somehow you have to stand back and try and understand how it all happened. I'm wondering how you understand these issues that have, I guess, maybe temporarily been resolved, namely between Poland and Ukraine, right? I mean, as you mentioned, as, as recently as the end of World War II, there were a lot of civilians slaughtered on the border regions there. So was it maybe the communal experience of sort of surviving in the Eastern Bloc, or is it just this sort of temporary coming together in the face of Russian aggression and Russian threats? Uh, I'd, I'd be curious to hear about that. Well, in a way, the extreme nature of the conflict during the Second World War and the solutions which were operated by Stalin, either by killing people or deporting them, like the whole population of Lvov, million people were deported and sent to Silesia and in the other direction as well. The Polish communists drove out the Ukrainian population in southeastern Poland. So the president the present generation not only knows about these things, as it were, by hearsay or books or the family stories and so on. There isn't any present conflict going on which has made the, the wave of, of immigration you know, bearable. But uh, I think at some point you, you might get populist politicians trying to exploit the, the issue in some way. But it's remarkable how Poland has gone from being a country where Ukrainians had a rather lower reputation to being you know, the biggest reservoir of hosting refugees. It's quite interesting how it's sort of a stereotype about historians, but always, you know, considering the, all of the context and if there's any context, people aren't considering really emphasizing, well, forgetting this one important thing. And this is kind of a, a slight change of, of focus. But one of the things that I did not realize until, until earlier this year was some of the context on these places in Ukraine, which are currently being fought for, like the fact that Luhansk was founded by a British industrialist and Donetsk was founded by a Welsh. A Welsh. Yeah, Welsh, excuse me. <laughs> I, I get them. But yeah, yeah like the, there is That's this. Right. <laughs> Okay. Well, he was British, John Hughes. Okay. John yeah, Hughes. I'd, yeah. I'd never heard of that before. Yeah, well, that, that's fascinating because John Hughes, who was a mining engineer and a coal mining tycoon in Britain, bought a piece of land, an empty piece of land near Donetsk, and the settlement was called Yuzovo, I Hughes Ovo, for the first 30 years. And it grew into the, the most productive heavy industrial area in the Russian Empire. And then, as it were, the favorite of the, the Bolsheviks, industrialization and all of that, which is the reason why the local population there, as Soviet attitudes have survived, I think that's why Putin has some support in in that part of the world. I wouldn't believe the referendum that he set, but there there is a local culture which is not favorable to you know the Ukrainian idea in Donetsk. 
But there are not many parts of Ukraine like that. But Zelensky himself, you know, is, is a Russian speaker. He was brought up speaking Russian and his famous television show, like it was all in Russian. And yet he feels Ukrainian. And there are countries like Wales is like where my ancestors came from. It's bilingual. You can be Welsh if you only speak English. It's not that you have to speak Welsh to be um, identify as Welsh. And they all don't like the English, you know, <laughs> or people from England. And they've only been at it for 800 years. The Ukrainians have not had so much of it. But the language issue is very interesting. Um, Putin and most Russians assume that if you speak Russian, you want to live in Russia. And they don't seem to cotton on that, that language is not necessarily the main indicator. I always quote the Irish. 95% of the Irish speak English. The English occupation of Ireland was so successful that the Irish language has always almost been eliminated. But those English-speaking Irishmen are not English, and they fought tooth and nail for decades to escape from being ruled by, from London. And that's the, the same phenomenon that you find in Ukraine. Some of the Russian speakers, like these people in Donetsk, are sympathetic to, to Putin, but um, most of them are not. And you don't have to know much history to understand why. People in Ukraine, whatever their uh, language, you know, have no reason to, to love Russia. I'd heard someone once make a joke that Russian speakers are to Russia what oil is to the United States. If you have it, eventually they'll come knocking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's an old question. You know, the echoes of the start of the Second World War, you know, the Nazis had the same idea that everybody who spoke German wanted to join the Reich. Of course, that wasn't true, but that was an important element in the invasion of Poland. And the, you know, the, the first place they went for was Danzig, which was a German-speaking free city where the Nazis didn't have a particularly big following. But... Well, I think, uh, I think we're approaching the end of our time. However, as a sort of closing question, we began our talk today, I guess, kind of about the, the state of the field, right? Studies, uh, Eastern European, Central Europe studies. And we've all obviously gone through quite a lot of historical material and contemporary material. So I'd be curious, Professor Davies, as one of the most foremost historians of the region, what do you understand the main tasks there to be, the main challenges? What do you expect from this new generation of scholars? Well, there's a, a number of things. One thing is, I, I think a regional approach is necessary. You get me talking, I, but I'm talking about Ukrainians and Jews and Germans and everything before. And this is what is needed. A lot of material coming from these countries is very sort of narrow focus. I don't know whether you've been to Ukraine, but the um, Ukrainian museums are quite curious. You know, they they don't like talking about the Poles. They'll say that, you know, Lvov was run by Austrians. They don't say that they, the largest number of Austrian citizens in Lvov were Polish. And similar things in Poland, that, that uh, as it were, the Polish element is, is promoted to the detriment of, you know, a wide range of contexts. And the 
the main task of people studying that region is to contest the the Russian version of events. The Russian version of history has been propagated very assiduously for the last 200 years and is the commonest source of information among Western scholars. Somehow the um, you know knowledge should be broadly based uh, so that uh, people in the West don't see everything necessarily from a Russian point of view. I, I think actually Putin has done us a big service by invading Ukraine. Uh, it's the first time in my lifetime that there isn't a chorus of people in you know the university saying you know you don't understand the Russians and you know Putin's got a point or uh, his aggression has been so blatant that um, very very few apologists around these days. But if you get into some of the um, the other issues, you find. No, naturally, Russia is a very big country, and it's been very attentive to propagating its point of view abroad. And Slavic departments are nearly all dominated by by Russicists. The lie of the land. Incidentally, I don't think that Polish studies ought to be centred in Slavic departments. There obviously should be a Polish section in, in Slavic departments, but you know the Polish element should be in the history departments, in the economic departments, the sociology departments, or whatever. And they should have this, this transnational approach. And somehow they, they, these Polish scholars need to help each other. They, um, you need in these days a network of you're doing exactly the right thing, you know, um, putting things online, make, making your discussions and activities known widely. But information's a jungle. If you're not careful, the big beasts will eat, eat, eat up the little beasts. So you have to be fleet of foot and um, fast on your feet. Wow, that's very well said. Thank you for that, really. <laughs> Rousing call, call to arms. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, Professor Davies. Jolly good then. Do widzenia. Bye-bye. Do zobaczenia. Slavic Connection is part of the Texas Podcast Network, the conversations changing the world. Brought to you by the University of Texas at Austin. The opinions expressed in this program represent the views of the hosts and the guests and not of the University of Texas at Austin. For more information, please visit us online at slobxradio.com. Thank you. The Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies condemns the Russian Federation's military invasion of Ukraine. We stand in support of the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives and sovereignty in the face of the unjustified invasion by Russian military forces.